Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai. And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown. And we are with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension through the Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. And this week, we're talking about aphids, those pesky insect pests that you probably see year after year sucking on your beautiful fruits, vegetables, or ornamentals in the landscape. Do y'all get aphids on a regular basis? All the time. Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're, you know, they're uh, known as a sucking insect pest, right? They have a little stylet that they use to suck up the sap. And they're trying to get uh, basically nitrogen out of that plant. With that nitrogen, they can make more amino acids, which are the precursors to make proteins. And with those proteins, they can make more babies. And so they are little baby-making machines. And so just by sucking up all that sap, they're, they're basically filtering, filtering through a lot of that sap to try and get that nitrogen. As a result, they're excreting this extra sap uh, in this sticky solution that's referred to as honeydew. So if you're ever looking at your plants and you see this uh, shiny surface on the leaves and it's a little bit sticky, there's a good chance you have some kind of a sucking insect pest, which can include aphids. And if you get that honeydew building up on there for a little while, you can start to get some sooty mold. And that's just a concoction of molds that likes this sugary solution on, uh, on the leaf surface. Now, what, what, what are some of the you know, plants that y'all typically get aphids on year after year? I think anyone who grows milkweed knows what aphids look like, right? <laughs> but um, you know, one kind of odd one that will get aphids on are crepe myrtles, but not until like Thanksgiving time, like fall. And it, and by then, you know, they're going to drop their leaves anyway. So it's, there's no point in really doing anything about it. But if people have really the real tall varieties of crepe myrtles that are, you know, many, many feet up in the air above their head and they park underneath it, then they'll have that sticky honeydew that drips down on them. And then it makes it hard to open your door. It's like, it's really sticky if you get enough of it. How about yourself, Wizzy? Definitely milkweed's kind of my thing, but I always try to plant the milkweed in my yard so I have aphids. That way I can have it for predators that are coming in because <laughs> yeah. they kind of stick to yeah. that particular plant. And that's a and that's a good thing you bring up. And, and later on we'll talk about how to actually potentially manage aphids. I think that's a really relevant point in terms of thinking of aphids as good predator food, right? So we can either think about how to come in with some kind of intervention to suppress their populations. But there's also an opportunity to use them as bait to, to bring in some, some good predators into our gardens. And that's a really good point, Molly, as well. You know, talking about those crepe myrtle aphids, we frequently see in pretty high abundance on those leaves. And when it gets on those cars, I find it's a pain to clean off my car. And that's where you got to take it to a car wash regularly. And that's one of those rare scenarios where I say, aphids are not typically an economic pest in the landscape unless let's say for example you're a used car dealership or or a brand new car dealership and you have all your brand new cars parked under an aphid infested creek myrtle that becomes a major issue because that can cause problems for you know the cleanliness of your car and cause problems with the paint so certainly something to consider and those aphids we're talking about on the milkweeds are, are really quite pretty, right? I mean, they, they vary a lot in, in shape and color, different aphid species. There's over 3,000 aphid species, a huge abundance of different species. Is that worldwide or just in the United States? I'm going to say worldwide. Yeah, I'm not sure how many are native to the U.S., but worldwide, there's at least 3,000 species of aphids. 
And on milkweed, that's just in his backyard. That's just yeah. <laughs> that's just in this petri dish right here that I'm holding up. I've, <laughs> one of each. <laughs> I'm shaking it around to see if I can get some new hybrids. Yeah, uh, but uh, on milkweed, they're like uh, kind of like a really nice orange, and uh, they're just like their tips of their siphunculi are, are, are black, right? They're little cornicles, little chimneys that are. Okay, you just used a word that people aren't going to know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're going to learn a new word today. Siphunculi or cornicles. <laughs> They're like these little chimneys, right? These little tubes that are coming off the rear end of the aphids. And it's a unique characteristic of aphids. So it is it's very specific to aphids. And they use those to basically release chemicals into the air to communicate with their other allies, essentially. Uh, so they will actually, these droplets of liquid will come out of these little chimneys and go into the air. It's known as a volatile compound because it goes into the air. Volatile is something that will naturally go into the air. And other aphids can use their antennae to detect it and communicate that way. So one example is with alarm pheromone. And I don't know, have y'all ever seen aphids you know, release those droplets of alarm pheromone and then seeing other aphids, how they react around them. Only like on YouTube or other videos. I've never seen it in real life. Oh, wow. Oh, you got to experience it firsthand. <laughs> so what can I do on my milkweed when it's got all those aphids on it? Can I take an ant and place it there? Or do you have to see it happen naturally? So that's a good point. So you bring up ants, right? Um, ants, herd aphids, and that's H-E-R-D, not H-U-R-T, right? So they will actually help and protect the aphids. And in return, they get that sweet, sweet honeydew, that sweet, sweet aphid poop, right? They're like looking for the goods. And so if you introduce an ant to it, they're not going to like necessarily- cows. Yeah. 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 They're, they're sometimes referred to as ant cattle, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, you basically just said it and I said it in a different way. <laughs> the exact same <laughs> thing you just said. Um, but yeah, so if you put an ant right next to the aphid, it won't necessarily release alarm pheromone because there's nothing to panic about. If you were to find some kind of predator, Wiz, you had mentioned um, using the aphids. Ladybugs. Yeah. That's the one everyone loves. I mean, lady beetles or ladybugs, commonly known as, they uh, are common predators of aphids. And so if you find some adults or ideally some immature lady beetles, and can put them next to them because that way they're not going to fly away and just kind of watch them a little bit. And you put them next to a bunch of aphids. As soon as it starts eating one, there's a high chance it's going to release some alarm pheromone and you're going to see the rest of those aphids all of a sudden moving their antennae much more rapidly and start to run away uh, and start to panic essentially. So it's a, it's a lot of fun to uh, witness that. Now, before I, we kind of get too deep into the predators and other beneficial insects in the landscape, I want to talk a little bit about the general aphid life cycle because it's pretty remarkable. I remember when I first learned about it, it kind of blew my mind. And it's sometimes referred to as a Darwinian demon because they have a part oh. of their life history that is ideally suited for very rapid reproduction and another part of their life history that's very well suited for genetic mixing, right? So basically for adapting to the new environment based on the ones that survived that the last environmental cycle, essentially. Which so, is amazing. Yeah. Not even knowing what you're going to get into. They're like, they, <laughs> they appear to be such primitive insects or oh, animals, yeah. right? And then uh, the, the fact that they can, but they're not, you know, they right. might look simple, but what they do is not so simple. 
Yeah, exactly. It's pretty remarkable. So it's like they're taunting us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I might look simple, but you you can't challenge my life cycle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout the season, right? Throughout the the main the bulk of the season, like right now, all aphids are female, asexual females. So they're all reproducing live clones of themselves about two to three every single day depending on the aphid species, the temperature, so on and so forth. If you were to actually dissect open a female, you would see their aphids at all different stages of development. You know, I always joke that uh, Henry Ford, who, who came up with the Ford factory line, the automotive factory line, he did not invent it, right? Aphids had it figured out well before that. They had factory lines for their babies happening in their bodies very early on. So they're like Russian dolls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they are because when that aphid is born, when a new offspring is born, she already has offspring developing in her. So that's how quickly they develop. So it is like a Russian doll, right? You got like multiples already developing within each other. Like why wait until you're out of your mother to start developing <laughs> your own babies? Oh, that's like some alien weird stuff. Oh, I mean, we all know insects are all weird alien stuff. I get that like alien popping out of the stomach thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll touch on that when we get to the parasitic wasps, which we've, which we've discussed <laughs> before in previous episodes. All aphids, when they become adults, they don't necessarily have wings. It's only when there's a high density of these aphids or degrading habitat, number of environmental cues in which the mother, while she's developing those offspring inside of her, turns on certain parts of the DNA of her offspring because they're all actually clones of the mother, but she's just turning on parts of the DNA that says you should invest some energy into wings. So those ones are going to be a little bit less reproductive. They're not going to have as many offspring because they're, they're spending more energy on developing wings, but they're going to be ideally suited for finding greener pastures. So when you start seeing winged aphids, whether it be maybe you have some yellow sticky traps or maybe you're seeing some on your arm, right? Like sometimes I see them kind of caught in my arm hair trying to crawl out. <laughs> then that's usually a sign that there is a high population of aphids nearby or they're dispersing, looking for some greener pastures. And so it might be worth looking for that high density population. And once they establish on a new plant, then you'll start getting those non-winged morphs again, non-winged aphids. If you're winged and you're an aphid, are you primarily males or does it matter? If I'm winged and an aphid, <laughs> <laughs> um, all, they're all females. All of them are going to be uh, females throughout the, the main bulk of the season. Okay. Yeah. Even when they are winged, they are still female. So they're kind of like an ant colony. There's very, very few males. That's right. Absolutely. I was going to say maybe even less males than an ant colony, but that's about right because there's only certain times of the ant's life history, let's say, that they might produce some males, perhaps when they're starting a new, looking to start a new colony. In the case of aphids, the only time when male aphids are produced is when they're getting ready to overwinter. When the cooler season is rolling around, they will all of a sudden produce males and females. So that mother that they've been producing live female clones of themselves without having to reproduce, all of a sudden they will start producing males and females. Those males and females will then mate. Now that's where you get your genetic mixing, right? So earlier I said they're all clones, so they don't really have a chance to acquire new DNA. Like if some aphids were good at tolerating high temperatures or maybe were a little bit resistant to your pesticides, they can't really mix those genes with others that have survived those pesticides and get basically more resistant aphids. 
But now later in the season, you have these males and females that can mate. They can mix these genes. So some of them are going to be better adapted to certain environments and some might be less better adapted to certain environments. So you have this ability for the population to become more adaptive to whatever challenges they faced in that last season. So they mate and now instead of producing live clones or live offspring, they're producing eggs. So imagine if as humans, if you reproduced in November and December, you produce eggs and any other time of the year you produce live offspring. Kind of a mind-blowing thought there. <laughs> and so those eggs are what can survive the cold temperatures, can survive the winters, and then the springtime, a new female will basically emerge. She's the foundress of her new clone army, and the cycle then uh, continues from there. I'm learning so da, much about da, aphids that da, I didn't da, know. Da, da. <laughs> yes, clone. Yeah, be careful. I think we can only do 10 seconds of the song before Disney comes out. <laughs> <laughs> I have always heard that one of the, the things, mechanisms that aphids have to perpetuate their reproduction and their growth is if you were to go in and treat with something and you knock out a bunch of aphids, they detect that there's less space around them and they'll almost double up their efforts in reproduction. Is that true? I don't know about whether they'll actually ramp up their reproduction like that per se. It may just be that there's more resources available, right? So if you have a less dense population, more, more resources available, it's going to be easier for them to acquire the resources to reproduce. So they may perform better when okay. they have lower density. Okay. But I don't know that they would necessarily all of a sudden make a choice to upregulate certain mechanisms. Yeah. I think it's just related to resource availability. That would okay. be my hypothesis, but I'm not certain on that. They're not like cancer cells, were they? Right? No. Don't well, they are kind of, that? but not, yeah, not, maybe not in that way. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense then because people will treat for aphids, right? And then they come back a week later and they're like, there's more of them than there were before. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you generally can't just treat once and then the aphids go away. They'll. But does that also have something to do with possibly what they're treating with and they're killing off some of the beneficials. Probably so. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to kind of like leave that to the management side because there's a lot of interesting stuff that kind of happens both with natural predators and parasitic wasps that would be kind of quite relevant when we're talking about management. But aphids, another really important thing to note is that they can vector a lot of viruses. So they are thought to vector some of the most plant viruses that we know of. And some of those viruses include alfalfa mosaic virus, cucumber mosaic virus, beet yellow virus, black raspberry necrosis virus, strawberry model virus. So there's like a whole suite of them and they can vector them in different ways. So some of them is just mechanical transmission. So they're basically a dirty needle, right? That's like yeah. going into an infected plant and they just have some of that infected material still on their needle essentially and they infect another one. And some of them can be a little bit more, they call it persistent or circulative where it can actually go into their bodies and that virus can perhaps persist within the body or might actually uh, reproduce within the body so that that viral load actually increases within the aphid as well. And so that can become very problematic in agricultural settings or in greenhouse production. It is absolutely vital to manage aphids where those viruses might be present because even a few aphids can wreak catastrophe. Now, again, in a landscape setting, that's not going to be as much of a concern, especially if it's a diverse landscape. If that virus is around you, you have aphids on your plants, it's probably too late anyway. And it's not going to necessarily affect everything. It might just affect that one particular type of crop. 
Are the viruses very specific to the aphids that carry them or can aphids carry multiple viruses? And if they do, can they do that at the same time? You know, that's a very good question. I'm not sure about whether they can carry multiple viruses at the same time. I, I would not see why not, especially with the, the non-circulative. So the ones that are just mechanical, right? I, I don't see why the viruses can coexist on the proboscis of, of an aphid or within their stylet, uh, so within their needle. And then in terms of whether they're specific to aphids, I think you can have, again, also different aphids carrying the same virus or a specific virus that can be carried on different aphids. So I don't know that they're necessarily specific to a species of aphid, but some of these viruses are relatively specific to the plants that they are on. Even if you have an aphid that maybe is, is relatively a generalist can feed on hundreds of different plants, maybe the virus can only infect a certain subset of those types of plants. Yeah. So now I'd like to get into talking a little about the predators and parasitoids. So Wizzy, you already mentioned the ladybugs or sometimes referred to as lady beetles because they are technically beetles. Is that your favorite or the most common that you see on aphids? I would say that it's probably the most common. Uh, I would say that one and the lace wings are probably what I get questions about the most, especially with the immatures, because people see them and they think that they're some sort of pest. Yeah. And so you have to do a little education there saying, no, 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 you need to leave this one. <laughs> it's good. People always think that ladybug larvae are pests or they, well, they look nasty. I'm like, yeah, it is nasty. It eats all those aphids. <laughs> <laughs> They're nasty predators. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And even like lady beetle pupae as well, like the pupae and or exuvia. So that's like their cocoon, right? That they leave on the tree and can stay there for a while after they emerge as new adults. So lady beetles, if you're not familiar, they completely transform in their shape, similar to a caterpillar to a butterfly. So they have an immature stage that doesn't look like a small version of a beetle. I describe it as a small little alien. Yeah, yeah, a little alien, a little dragon alligator thing that I think they look like alligators too. I always say that. Yeah, exactly. And they just stuff aphids in their mouths and eat them. And I encourage you just Google lady beetle larva or lady beetle pupa. It's P-U-P-A. So you're familiar with what they look like so that when you see them, you know that you got some good ones fighting by your side. Do y'all ever see any parasitic wasps? Yes. Those are fun. Yeah. I never see them really flying around unless if you take a good cutting of a, a leaf or something infested with aphids, sometimes you'll see those wasps crawling around. But I always, always, always get people that send me a picture of a leaf that has aphids on it. And there's always a mummified aphid. And those to me are the funniest things. They're just like those big, fat, blubby aphids that can't do anything, can't really feed very much and <laughs> are gigantic. And I love it. Do you want to explain a little bit, Molly, like what are parasitic? I mean, you just kind of said like uh, and these mummies and they're a small little flying wasp, essentially. Can you explain like what is a parasitic wasp? How does it help manage aphids? There's lots of different types of parasitic wasps and there are parasitic wasps that will go after other species of pests, but they're a teeny, teeny, tiny wasp that's like smaller than a gnat. So if you had hundreds of them in your landscape, you would never even know that they were there. And they're generally pretty species specific, I think. What's the wasp that mummifies the aphid? There are several different ones. It's not uh, just one. I didn't yeah, know Yeah, there that. are several different species. Yeah. Okay. Well, it comes and it lays its egg inside of the aphid. The baby develops inside of the aphid, keeps the aphid alive because the wasp needs to complete its own life cycle. But if you had a dog 
parasitizing you from the inside, you wouldn't feel very good and you wouldn't eat very much. And so <laughs> the aphids don't, I don't do know, I'd feel damage. kind of fluffy on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't do the damage that they would normally if they felt good, right? When you get sick, you don't eat as much. And then they get big and fat as the wasp starts to develop. And it just is like this big blubber of an aphid that changes color. And it's just so fat with its little legs sticking out. They just kind of look funny. And then what I love is they make a perfectly round little hatch that the wasp emerges from and then leaves the shell of the aphid behind. So you can see live mummified aphids. And then you can also see the dead ones left behind the exoskeleton with the little, it's like a submarine hatch. It's just a perfect round circle that they pop out of. It's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Crazy. Yeah. And that aphid mummy is that inflated aphid. And the color that it is can be specific to the parasitic wasp. There's a whole lot of aphid parasitic wasps. Actually, parasitic wasps are thought to be now the new most diverse group of organisms on the planet. So actually really? Hymenoptera that actually also, also counts like ants and, and bees. Those parasitic wasps are usually within that category. And it's thought that Hymenoptera now are much more diverse than beetles. Originally, I just thought it was beetles. But there's a, a kind of a hypothetical theory kind of given because every single species of insect that we know of, for the most part, has at least one parasitic wasp that attacks it, if not oh. two or three. And then often there are hyperparasitoids or secondary parasitoids. So there are wasps of these wasps. So the wasp <laughs> lays an egg inside that host and this other secondary parasitoid has to lay an egg inside or on that larva that's inside this other host. Crazy. And that's not uncommon either. And so. Which people need to think about that. It's like, yeah. imagine having to find <laughs> that and being able to search out an egg inside of another insect so you can lay your egg in it. I can't it's find my car keys. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's pretty remarkable. Mm. And so. Yeah, parasitic wasps are thought to be um, the most diverse life form on the planet. And so, yeah, there are many different parasitic wasps of aphids and are certainly very advantageous to kind of have in, in the landscape. And there's a very uh, remarkable relationship between what happens with that little larva, that little parasitic wasp worm or larva inside that aphid and the aphid itself. Because the aphid does have kind of an immune response. It does have a mechanism to help uh, recognize foreign bodies and to get rid of them. However, that parasitic wasp larva has a bunch of proteins on its outside to trick the aphid into thinking that it's just another aphid embryo. And so the mother is, as a result, feeding that larva nutrients. And wow, that larva is just eating everything up. And so it's a pretty remarkable thing that goes on there. And within the last, I think it's been the last 15 years, there's been discovery of these things called endosymbionts. And that's these beneficial bacteria inside the aphid. They have a beneficial relationship with the aphids and, and the aphids beneficial to bacteria because the aphids help harbor these bacteria, but the bacteria can help give some beneficial characteristics to the aphids. One of those characteristics is resistance to parasitic wasps. So these bacteria are better suited for recognizing these wasp larvae and basically eating them up, thereby protecting their aphid host. So it's pretty remarkable that, you know, you have these bacteria that can really help these aphids survive. And so it brings in this whole element 
into adaptation of these aphids because no longer is it in the aphids DNA to resist these wasps. It's this bacteria and bacteria can be transmitted between these aphids much easier than transmitting their DNA. And so it again feeds into how quickly or, or how these aphids can adapt to their environment because there's even some endosymbionts that may confer resistance to pesticides or make them higher temperature tolerant and things like that. So they can very quickly adapt to new environments without having to change their main DNA, their core code, essentially. And this is why people, when they say, I didn't have aphids yesterday and now they're everywhere. <laughs> this is part of the reason why. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because you have Darwinian demons in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> but and not all parasitic wasps are small. So maybe a lot of you are familiar with uh, cicada killers, right? Cicada killers are a type of parasitic wasp. There's even one called a pepsis wasp or a tarantula hawk. And they will basically wrestle a tarantula and paralyze it with a sting, lay an egg on it, and that egg will hatch out and a larva will eat that tarantula live. So, you know, for each of those pepsis wasps, it as a newborn infant has eaten a tarantula. <laughs> so, like, I love, I love the idea of how tough basically these, these wasps are. They also will eat other spiders, won't they, Wizzy? It depends on what species, but yeah, okay. there's other pompilids that'll do other ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. The tarantula hawks are super cool, though. I mean, they're really large wasps, but seeing one of those like dragging a tarantula <laughs> Have you across seen the ground, it is amazing. Oh, that's cool. I want to I want a front row to see to that. <laughs> but sometimes they're huge. I mean, I've seen some that I think are larger than cicada killer wasps. Maybe it's the female versus like a male cicada killer wasp, but those true tarantula hawks can be giant. Wow. And we had also mentioned already uh, lace wings. The little buggers. <laughs> I love lacewing. I, yeah, I adore lacewing larvae. I think that they are so cute and with their giant mandibles. Yeah. But every time they fall out of the tree and land on me, they bite me. And, I'm and just it hurts. Like, mm. Ooh, it hurts. I've and never it been bit by lacewing larva. Consider yourself lucky. It's yeah. not. It doesn't feel too good. Ooh. And they just are so sassy. They have this attitude about them for being <laughs> as tiny as they They'll are. They stick their little abdomen up and it's like, you need to chill out. I can yeah. smash you easy with my pinky. <laughs> so lace wings, I love their eggs. You know, they, they lay yeah. these eggs in these single little threads, essentially of a wire almost, right? It's like this little piece of white string or clear string and there's an egg on it. And they it lay a bunch like a of balloon. them. Yeah, yeah, that's that true. Like it looks a like a helium balloon on a string. Yeah. Or like people always think it's mold or fungus or something. I remember the first time I saw it, that's what I thought it was. I, I did not know what it was the first time I saw it. I, I know through some experimentation where they manipulated the length of those strings, they showed that when you got rid of those strings, there was a lot of cannibalism, right? The first one that came out basically ate the brothers and sisters. As you increase that string, it decreased cannibalism. So it's a very interesting way of the female being able to lay all of our eggs right next to each other, right? A lazy way of laying all your eggs, but without being concerned about your offspring all <laughs> eating each other when they first come out. Is there a reason for that with the string? I've always just assumed it's because I guess they are more interested in getting down than, than noticing that all the other eggs are kind of wiggling and, it, and that could be a food source. But has anyone ever figured out why it's better to do that? From what I recall, I think it's very difficult for them to climb up and down those little strings. So it might be okay. easier to kind of climb down it, but it's kind of hard to climb up a new one. And so they kind of lose interest. The lacewing mothers are laying her eggs near some prey. So then those prey become easier pickings yeah. than trying to climb up those strings to their brothers and sisters. 
Okay. All right. So now I guess the last bit is kind of how to get rid of them. So we already spoke about... Not the lace wings. Not, yeah, not the lace wings. How to get rid of the aphids. You know, we've already kind of mentioned the scenario in which people will spray something and end up apparently with a lot more the next week. What are some common reasons as to why that may occur in y'all's experiences? Well, it really depends on what they're using to treat for aphids. I mean, if you have somebody bringing out a big gun, broad spectrum pesticide and they're spraying everything because they have aphids, it's going to wipe out everything that comes into contact with it. And so you're going to be killing off your beneficials and all of those predators and parasitoids that are there killing your aphids. And so then the aphids that survived that attack are going to explode. And the other thing that I also find that people do wrong when they're treating for aphids, a lot of these aphids are going to be on the underside of the leaf mm -hmm. and they're spraying from the top. And so that mm -hmm. pesticide is not getting to where the aphids are. And so you're essentially not doing much of anything to kill them. Yeah. Those all sound pretty familiar to you as well, Molly. They do. Yes. You know, there's this concept called the pesticide treadmill, where when you use one kind of broad spectrum pesticide, you can inadvertently cause a secondary problem. In this case, it's re-causing the primary problem, right? So like Wizzy had mentioned, you're, if you kill all the predators and, and wasps, you know, you're rarely going to get 100% control with a single application of a pesticide. Even with a second application, you might get 99%, but getting 100% is pretty challenging, especially if you have a thick canopy. And if you've done a really good job, however, killing your predators and parasitic wasps, your aphids are coming back with a vengeance. A lot of these predators have a number of secondary effects on these aphids that might not be actual consumption. So for example, aphids, when they start eating some of those, sorry, lady beetles, and they start eating some of those aphids, they're panicking. Like we mentioned earlier, they have that alarm pheromone, they start panicking. Some of them will actually jump off the plant. And there are some ground dwelling predators, such as ground beetles that are usually sitting and waiting like vultures waiting to just grab up those aphids and eat them. That is a great image. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's horrific. And then any other aphids that have maybe not been consumed still have a decreased chance of survival because now they need to climb all the way back up to the plant. When we kill these predators, you're getting rid of a whole suite of mechanisms and synergies between these predators that were being used to drastically suppress these aphid populations. And usually my method is just hose those plants down, but keep a close eye on them to see how those aphid populations are doing over time. Because there are situations where those populations might go up and then they will crash because they become too high density and they, they can't sustain themselves. They don't have enough resources or those predators, parasitic wasps and everything starts moving in. It can really all of a sudden punch their population back down. And so I think it's very important, at least in the landscape, to just keep a close eye on those populations. And if you're spraying something, look for something that has a label that has fewer rather than more insects on that label. And that usually means it's a little bit more specific to those pests rather than being very broad spectrum. And also try to see if, if there's even justification to treat because you could have Absolutely. high loads of aphids on something, but it's still doing what it's supposed to do. And one exception that we see a lot of times in a vegetable garden is maybe it's like squash season or you're at the end of maybe cucumber season, but you really feel like you should get one more harvest out of that plant. And a lot of times if you flip the leaves over, there's a bunch of aphids under there and just a treatment with insecticidal soap within a couple days will give that plant is now no longer under so much stress that it can't produce blooms, that it starts to bloom and you get that last harvest out of whatever vegetable it is that you're noticing that issue with. But it's deceiving because the aphids are not 
not putting enough stress on the plant that the plant looks sick. It just isn't producing the blooms and the blooms are what make the fruit or the vegetables. So it's often misdiagnosed or un- undiagnosed, I guess, unnoticed to realize what the actual issue is. And people, when they're monitoring, they also need to not only monitor for the aphids, but also to look for predators and parasitoids and things like lady beetle larvae and lacewing larvae and surfid fly larvae and look for those aphid mummies. And if you have that going on, you might not need to do anything to your aphid population because it's already being taken care of. Yeah. It's so important to know who your good guys are, not just all the bad guys. Yeah. So do some Google image searches or Bing image searches whatever floats your boat. Just to give an idea of like, what does an aphid parasitoid mummy look like? What does a lady beetle larva look like? What does a lacewing larva look like? So again, you know, at least what those good guys look like and you can keep an eye out for them. And then also the pictures are huge, right? These are teeny, teeny, little, teeny <laughs> yes. tiny things. Like, I can't stress how little the ladybug yeah. larvae are. So you don't go, it's a big giant picture on your computer screen, but in real life, you really have to squint to know what you're looking at. Yeah. Computer images, not to scale. Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that's all I had about aphids. I hope, you know, you've learned uh, what you've wanted to know and perhaps a little bit you didn't know you wanted to know about aphids. And I learned some you. stuff. Oh, good. I learned Hello. a lot of stuff. Yep. All right. Awesome. My well, mind is blown. <laughs> thank you all for tuning in for another episode of Bugs by the Yard. Again, my name is Erfan Bafai. And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown. And we are with the Department of Entomology through Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Y'all have a nice fortnight.